Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. Revenge. Sweet, sweet revenge. Tons of paper and ink have been spent writing about it, and its opposite, forgiveness. Most say that revenge only consumes you. As the old proverb goes, sometimes attributed to Confucius, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. And even Mahatma Gandhi said, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. But such wisdom rarely pierces the red mist of rage that real or perceived injustice can bring down in an instant and remain for decades. And the implications of this among leaders and populations are as important as they have been shown to be devastating. From Boudicca's anti-Roman rousing of the ancient British tribes to the modern-day war on terror, revenge spurs conflict across thousands of years and thousands of miles. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Welcome to Why We Fight revenge. In the year 61, the ancient British Celtic tribe, the Iceni, mourned the death of their king, Prasutagus. His wife Boudicca and their two daughters wept, but were safe in the knowledge that Prasutagus had left the kingdom to them in his will. The only problem, though, was that he'd also jointly left it to the Roman Emperor Nero. The Romans had controlled most of southern and middle Britain since their invasion in 43 AD, and while they had militarily crushed some tribes, with others like the Iceni, they lived amicably side by side as long as those tribes submitted as formal Roman allies. Now though, with the death of Prasutagus, they decided to take more direct control of the Iceni lands in what is now Norfolk in the east of England, and how they did it plunged Roman Britain into a crisis which nearly saw the legions leave altogether. Marching into the Iceni lands, they began to confiscate territory and property, and when Boudicca objected, they had her flogged and her two daughters raped in front of her. By the time they'd left, the Iceni stood in shocked silence. But the rage of humiliation and revenge quickly built in both Boudicca and her tribe. Almost immediately, the Iceni, Trinovantes and several other British tribes rose up in violent revolt, led by Boudicca. The Roman historian Tacitus says she gave a rousing speech. It is not as a woman descended from noble ancestry, but as one of the people that I am avenging lost freedom, my scourged body, and the outraged chastity of my daughters. And she finished, This is a woman's resolve. As for men, they may live and be slaves. It worked. Another Roman historian, Cassius Dio, says that 230,000 British rose to her call, 
and they descended on Roman cities like Camulodunum and Londinium, today's Colchester and London. Both were razed and burned to the ground, and Tacitus says that no one was spared, with possibly 80,000 people slaughtered, including local British as well as Romans. This was blind, vengeful wrath, seething anger and furious resentment meted out on the countryside and towns of Roman Britain. So devastating was it that when current governor Gaius Suetonius Paulinus rushed back from Wales with his legions, he quickly evacuated London in the face of such overwhelming numbers and Boudicca's unrelenting fury. Eventually, though, Suetonius did find a place to fight, and Boudicca was lured there. The exact site of the battle is unknown, but it's generally thought to be somewhere along the Roman road now named Watling Street. What we do know is that Suetonius parked his hastily assembled legions in a gorge which opened out onto a wide plain. With a forest guarding his rear and the walls of the gorge protecting his flanks, Leonidas himself would have been impressed with such a position. Because Suetonius had just 10,000 men and Boudicca marched to meet him with 230,000. But here, Boudicca's revenge met its end. Rushing headlong into the ever-narrowing gorge, the British force quickly found itself increasingly compressed and unable to use either their longswords or their famous war chariots. The Romans advanced into the crush in a saw-shaped formation, funnelling unfortunate souls to their deaths by the thrusting of hundreds of gladii. Possibly 80,000 died in the battle, and the rest scattered. Boudicca herself committed suicide according to Tacitus, while Cassius Dio says she died of an illness. Have you ever heard of the Quarasmid Empire? Most people would say no, and that's how effective Genghis Khan's revenge was. The Khwarezmid Empire ruled large parts of Central Asia, present-day Afghanistan and Iran in the 13th century, and it suddenly gained a border with the rapidly expanding Mongol Empire. When Genghis Khan sent a 500-man trade mission to the Khwarezmians in 1218, the Shah distrusted their motives and thinking they were spies, had them all imprisoned. And when the ever-beneficent Genghis sent ambassadors asking for their release, the Shah had the ambassadors either humiliated or beheaded, and all 500 traders executed. This time, Genghis didn't send ambassadors. He sent 200,000 of his finest warriors in a multi-pronged assault just to teach the Shah a lesson. So thorough was he in his vengeance that the Khwarezmid Empire ceased to exist just 13 years later. One of the best-known examples of revenge-authored warfare is World War II, and it's possibly also 
one of the best examples of the need to dig two graves when you set out for vengeance. The road to the rise of Hitler's Nazis and the outbreak of war in 1939 was long and had many causes. But central to many of them was Hitler's desire for revenge against France after what he saw as the betrayal of Germany's collapse at the end of World War I in 1918. So harsh were the terms demanded, above all by France, that it led inexorably to runaway German inflation and economic collapse in the 1920s and early 30s. And it was France who led the occupation of the German Ruhr in 1923, something Hitler saw as a ritual humiliation. Many say, therefore, that the seeds for all this lay in World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. But those seeds grew even earlier, in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. Concerned with the rise of German power after the Prussians had crushed Austria in 1866, France declared war in a move designed to show this little upstart what the balance of power in Europe meant. But all the French did was to accelerate German unification, and they found themselves mercilessly outperformed on the battlefields of Gravelot and Sedan. Paris itself was besieged and captured in January 1871, and by May the French had had enough. In the Treaty of Frankfurt, they were forced to hand over to Germany large parts of France in Alsace and Lorraine. In the years following, French bitterness at this dishonour, the desire to revenge themselves on the Germans and regain Alsace-Lorraine, were some of the major contributing factors in the outbreak of World War I. But more importantly, they were a huge part of the reason the French demanded such harsh reparations on the Germans at Versailles. It was all about revenge. But in digging Germany's grave at Versailles, they dug their own too, as we've seen. Because in 1940, the German war machine blitzkrieged its way into France, forcing its surrender in just six weeks. And if you still don't believe how revenge drove all of this, Hitler had the French sign their surrender in the same railway carriage at the same location that Germany had been forced to surrender in 1918. Hitler sat in the same chair that French Marshal Foch had done all those years earlier and left early, as Foch had done too, in a deliberate show of disdain. Revenge was also one of the primary causes of the United States' entry into the war. When Germany invaded France in 1940, American public opinion was 93% opposed to getting involved. Over the next 18 months, it slowly began to shift in favour, but by the time Japan launched their infamous attack on Pearl Harbour in December 1941, the pendulum had swung the full way. Demanding outraged vengeance, 91% said war. Imperial Japan was to feel the full force of American payback when it suffered two atomic strikes on Nagasaki and Hiroshima in 1945. 
there is the truly dark story too of how German and Eastern European civilians would bear the brunt of Soviet revenge from 1944 on. The Soviets had endured shocking and gruesome war crimes at the hands of German SS and other units during the Nazi invasion of Russia, and they now revenged themselves on German, Polish, Lithuanian, Romanian, Austrian civilians, and those of many other nations. War crimes were widespread. According to modern estimates and German government studies, more than 2 million German civilians were executed, tortured and raped. Richard Overy, a British historian, argues this was largely done in the name of vengeance. And today, the war on terror stems at least in part from the desire for revenge too. Islamic terror groups like Al-Qaeda formed partly to combat US and Western presence in the Middle East, Africa and Asia, which they feel dirty and dishonour Muslim lands. But even more importantly, their goals were aimed at vengeance for Western support for the killing of Muslims. In Osama bin Laden's 2002 Letter to America, he laid out Al-Qaeda's motives for the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center's Twin Towers of New York. Many of them include what he called Western attacks on Muslims in Somalia, Russian attacks on Muslims in Chechnya, Indian oppression of Muslims in Kashmir, and Jewish aggression against Muslims in Lebanon. But the 9-11 attacks galvanised the United States in the same way Pearl Harbour had done, and for the first time in NATO's history, Article 5 was invoked, namely, that an attack on one member was an attack on all. That led inexorably to the long war in Afghanistan and contributed to the argument for the second Gulf War in Iraq in 2003, when multiple intelligence agencies believed there to be weapons of mass destruction ready to be used by Iraq or terror group affiliates. But in neither case has the threat of terrorism reduced. A taliban fueled insurgency still rages in Afghanistan, and Islamic State rose quickly from the ashes of Iraq to control much of the region until Western powers again intervened. IS still bombs Iraq today, with a double suicide bombing in Baghdad killing 32 people just three weeks ago. The rise of IS contributed to the Syrian civil war too, in which over 200,000 people have died. And it's thought tens of thousands of foreign Muslims went to fight there before returning home as trained combatants. These and potential homegrown terrorists still pose a major headache for intelligence agencies around the world. It was bin Laden's warped thirst for revenge in 2001 which led the world down an unprecedented rabbit hole from which it still hasn't fully emerged. The US and its allies were always going to respond in a big way, and perhaps that's what he planned for all along. In all these ways, humanity's need for vengeance has plunged and continues to plunge us into war, with long-term consequences. It's my hope that as a species, 
we can find a better way to resolve our grievances and avoid causing them in the first place. Because history tells us all about the sobering spirals and repercussions that revenge often brings. Join us next time for the penultimate episode of this Why We Fight series, where we look at the role geopolitics plays in human conflict. Thanks for listening. See you then.